Equal access to justice is a core American value. In each episode of Talk Justice, an LSC podcast, we'll explore ways to expand access to justice and illustrate why it is important to the legal community, business, government, and the general public. Talk Justice is sponsored by the Leaders' Council of the Legal Services Corporation. Hello, I'm Molly McDonough. I'm a communications and media professional eager to explore more effective ways to meet the legal needs of underserved populations. I enjoy speaking with leaders and innovators in this space. And today I'm speaking with two guests who are closely monitoring the more formal implementation of virtual court proceedings following the emergency and pretty much ad hoc measures to shift courts to virtual settings during the pandemic. Jennifer Leach is the executive director of the National Self-Represented Litigants Project in Canada, and Danielle Hirsch is a court management consultant with the National Center for State Courts. Welcome, Jennifer and Danielle. So happy to have you both with us today to talk about remote court proceedings and, in particular, the user experience. It's clear that virtual courts are here to stay, and there's pretty much wide support for proceedings after the pandemic essentially forced the option. I saw a quote recently that I wanted to share from the Colorado Supreme Court Chief Justice Brian Boatwright. He said, um, it's a foregone conclusion that virtual proceedings are here to stay, and they provide a tremendous benefit in many respects. But while many attorneys and judges are in full support and litigants want the option, or at least they say they do, we're starting to see some data that users aren't as enthusiastic after experiencing the proceedings. Which brings me to an article that Jennifer recently wrote for the online legal magazine Slaw. It's called uh, A Brave New Virtual World, uh, where she addressed this disconnect. Jennifer, can you talk a little bit about your article and, and what you're seeing? Sure. So what we were very, I mean, the pandemic hit and everybody had to go online. That was the only option that was really available. The courts were closed. The administrative tribunals were were shut down. And so there was this very quick turnaround by the court processes. Um, as the time went on, it was assumed that this would be a great sort of access to justice initiative. And we see sort of, you know, ideas of technology threaded through lots of discussions about access to justice as a means of sort of providing a broader based access. But within our organization, we do intake reports that are based on surveys filled out by self-reps. And one of the things that really struck us was this idea that a a large percentage of self-represented litigants were saying they would like to have the option of virtual hearings, and it seemed like it would be a good idea. But the second statistic, which reflected those who had participated in virtual hearings, was also quite high in terms of their dissatisfaction with the virtual hearing process that they had been engaged in. And again, a lot of this is during the period of the pandemic, so things are happening very quickly, and there's lots of perhaps explanations for what might have been dissatisfactory. But it caused us to think about the idea of of what exactly virtual hearings can offer in terms of access to justice for self-represented litigants in particular, and then the further thought that flowed from that is, are we, you know, the, the more kind of theoretical academic question was, are we using virtual hearings in the right way? So they are simply just 
taking people out of courtrooms and leaving them in their living rooms to sort of argue cases in the same way, in the same format, etc. And is that really what we want to do with virtual hearings? Or do we see it as an opportunity to do something different? So we undertook some grant applications and were very happily funded by the McLaughlin Fund, who's named for our former Chief Justice, Beverly McLaughlin, to look at issues of access to justice. And so we're in the process now of doing a fairly extensive cross-Canada research project involving sort of the perspective of self-repped users in virtual hearings. And we want to understand not just what doesn't work, but also what does work and that to inform going forward. Because as you say, this is the new reality. We are going to have virtual hearings going forward. Therefore, we ought to think about how we do it. And what are the places, particularly for self-reps, where old challenges may have been addressed, but new challenges are created by being in a virtual world? Those look very different for self-reps than they do for litigated or for represented litigants. So we're trying to think about that. Danielle, now I know the National Center for State Courts is looking at a lot of this and has been really early on providing resources for courts and best practices. Can you tell me a little bit about any data you're starting to see in this area? Yeah, no, um, Molly, first, thank you for having me. Um, It's a real treat. I've been a big fan of Jennifer's for a long time as of yours. And so it's a delight to be on podcast with both of you. We at the National Center feel some urgency that we get the balance of technology and court proceedings right, but that it also, there are courts which who are reverting back to all in-person practices. And so not to be a cynic as to the underlying assumption, but I think we have some work to do in places to make this as useful for all involved because virtual hearings are more work for the judicial officer in a different kind of a way. And a lot of court proceedings are really predicated, especially in a high volume. It's really easy when everybody's in the same room. And so there has been some pressure in a lot of places Um, So the role of the National Center has been to both showcase examples of courts that are doing this well, as well as to help understand how to do it even better or considerations to think about. And the way I like to think about it is what kinds of hearings are best remote versus in person? What are there areas of, of law where that should make a difference? And then to promote best practices from there. But the Conference of Chief Justices and the Conference of State Court Administrators, of which we're the secretariat for both, they promulgated some best practices and guiding principles very early in the pandemic about court technology. And I think your instinct to talk about user experience was very similar to their goals. So the first goal that they had was really make sure that due process and procedural fairness and substantive law is still proceeding in the manner that you would expect and need to have these hearings. And then the second thing was really to focus on the users and to think about all the different kinds of users, whether that's the judicial staff, whether that's the private bar, whether that's the civil legal aid bar in particular, or pro bono volunteers or litigants themselves or parties or witnesses. And so it's been an interesting several years to try to quantify that. And I think we're still at the very beginnings. But 
I guess I'll stop with one interesting, my colleague Samira Nazem leads our eviction diversion work where we fund 12 courts across the United States right now to implement eviction diversion and have court staff hired to help in that purpose. And as part of that program, we're asking for all sorts of data. And so we just got our first data pool. Thank you to Stout who crunched the numbers for us. And in Grand Rapids, Michigan, as an example, 97% of the litigants involved in eviction proceedings had a smartphone, and 93% of people were very comfortable using having court be remote. And in the Circuit Court of Cook County, which is greater Chicago, 90% of litigants in their diversion program came to court using a smartphone, and 87% participated remotely. Cook County has some Zoom rooms. And so there is a need that's being solved this way. And so I I think it's an important discussion that we're having about refining that more. I think that's a really good way to put it and refining some of this. You know, I'm seeing some solutions. We've we've talked on this on this show about kiosks and other ways to address things like uh, broadband issues and and privacy and you know, some other interesting ways to use technology to allow people to to allow especially self-represented litigants to be able to access the courts from especially remote areas. And I'm wondering, though, outside, in addition to broadband, what issues, what barriers or issues you're seeing? I, I remember doing reporting years ago about how ever, almost everybody has a, a smartphone. And so there was all this promise that apps were going to solve all the problems of the world. <laughs> But it's still with a remote proceedings and video and all the uh, so many of the requirements. It, you know there are equity issues with how you're per, how you are perceived when you when you parachute in with low broadband or you know some of some of these other issues. I'm wondering kind of what you are seeing in this in this area, what the gaps are. Well, the gaps. I mean, Canada is an interesting context too, because even in Ontario, which is the most populated province in Canada, you can drive eleven hours <laughs> outside of Toronto and still be in Ontario and be sort of interacting with very small communities. So the the remoteness is actually a really significant issue here, and the Ontario government has actually had to set up kind of stations where people can go to access internet because even short amount of distance outside of a major center like Toronto, you lose, you lose all internet. <laughs> it's not a matter of um, sort of low quality. That is a significant issue here. And of course, you know, there's a link between remote communities and access to resources, uh, who's in remote communities, who, you know, what do the populations look like? For us, we also have a large indigenous component. And they are, you know, there's a cross, um, like, I'm not going to use the sort of word intersectionality, but there's a crossing of conditions that make virtual hearings in, in significant pockets of our country very problematic. So the broadband is, is important. The sort of access to any other resources that go with that, including spaces, and we know in family law, that's been an issue as well having a place to even do hearings becomes problematic. And that, again, intersects with who self-reps are because they tend to be older. They tend to be lower socioeconomic circumstances. 
all of which creates a bit of a perfect storm in kind of inhibiting access as opposed to sort of encouraging access from a virtual perspective. Um, so we are wrestling with those and your statistics are are amazing that, that that there's that high a number with you know smartphones and and obviously then with access. I don't even think we're there <laughs> in, in Canada in large parts. And our administrative system, like our administrative law world here in Ontario, has basically said we're staying virtual. The whole kind of large province will be virtual hearings, and that's you know social benefits. That's human rights. That's landlord tenant. Those are the places where people also have the least access to resources. So for us, actually, it is a, a, an issue here that, and it's informed some of our questionnaire, actually. And I don't mean to portend that the digital divide isn't a challenge okay. in the U.S. either. Yeah. Uh, what I think is so interesting, the Pew Research Trust, as well as the Benton Institute, have done a lot of research on the digital divide here in the U.S. and have found real issues of race and inequality and equity. So I think your question, Molly, is a great one, that some of the biggest digital divide broadband deserts can be in urban communities where it's like the cell phone plan available, like the markup did research on this, that the availability of affordable internet connections can be really cost prohibitive, especially in neighborhoods with high numbers of people of color and that the ACP, you know, 50% of people don't even know about the availability of that credit. So it begs to these larger questions. I think a couple of things that courts have done that I would love to celebrate in this space to address some of these access and equity issues, just as a few examples, in the Salt Lake City Justice Court, they're building some kiosks. They took over a courtroom and are putting in together in partnership with the National Center's hybrid hearings initiative, as well as the city of Salt Lake City, they're, they're making a number of kiosks where people can come in and have their hearing remotely, but have some private space to have a confidential conversation and do so um, whether or not they have the broadband or the tech savvy. Also, yeah. we, you know, despite the fact that people can participate on smartphones, it's really challenging. Judicial officers are all on computers. And so kind of recognizing the limitations of what's available on phones, allowing for that option seems really important. Another thing in terms of, you know, we're talking about remote hearings, but there are remote services like paying fees and fines, filing documents. And I think technology in all of those spaces needs to be informed by lots of different kinds of users. An example where I think technology can help us tremendously is in language access. You know, there are a lot of communities across the United States that have languages of less common diffusion in a place. So I'll give you an example. In Rock Island, Illinois, they have a really large French Guianese population, but there are no necessarily court interpreters that are certified in Rock Island. And so traditionally, it would have been very expensive to bring in an interpreter. And so they would be much more limiting as to when they could afford to bring someone in, they might use language line or some other kind of system to kind of patch through. Now with the possibility of video remote interpreting, that's so much more possible. And I think that's something that can address some of these equity gaps. And another thing is in Kansas and in Arizona, as examples, there are really exciting orders of protection portals 
that allow people to apply for emergency orders of protection online 24 hours a day, which traditionally wasn't possible. And I did some work in central Kansas and was really informed by a conversation with a clerk who said, the community is so small, if you come in with the domestic violence advocate who everyone knows, everyone knows what you're doing, like why you're coming into court, what you need, and it could be a real security risk for the person. Now, with the advent of a Kansas domestic violence portal, that risk is no longer possible. And if the hearing is ex parte, they can even do that hearing remotely without forcing that person in crisis to come into court. So I think there are huge access and, and equity gaps. And to Jennifer's point, we often communicate with the people who participate via phone, right? I have a colleague, Terry Deal, who's doing really incredible virtual child welfare research but the people she's able to reach are the people who are coming to court, whether that's on their smartphone or on the computer or coming to a kiosk. The people that we're having trouble trying to understand are the people who aren't participating, which is precisely why I'm so eager to hear what Jennifer finds out, because we need to figure out how we can make this possible for everyone. And whether that's a hybrid manner, so you can, however you choose to participate, let's get you to participate or whether there are other things structurally we should be doing. Like, I think this is a wonderful opportunity to find those things out. Jennifer, I see you taking notes and shaking your head um, or nodding your head. So I wanted to see if you wanted to jump in before I address a point that uh, Danielle just made. To Danielle's point, the reason I was nodding is one of the big sort of motivators for us in this research was trying to figure, to get at those communities who don't have the internet access, who don't have the smartphones, who don't have the sort of savvy computer experience. Um, And that's very challenging, particularly in a country as sort of big as Canada and has spread out. But that's what we're hoping to do because if we are in this new virtual world, there will be people that get left behind. And it's trying, as Danielle said, I think so aptly, trying to ensure that everyone has the ability to participate in the way that they can participate. And so that's really significant for us. And it's it's a bit of a challenge. We are gathering kind of entry points across the country but, you know, some of the entry points are extremely remote communities, uh, both geographically and socially. And so trying to get to those individuals in order to ensure that, that they have something to say about their ability to participate. I think the other thing, too, about virtual is, and I think this probably flows from Danielle's comments as well, It's taking this as an opportunity to think about all the different ways in which people can participate in different parts of the legal system or access different needs and rights and issues. Um, So whether it's an order for protection or it's paying fines or it's dealing with particular types of matters, it's thinking about not just the, the tech side of it, but also kind of the process side of it. And how that might need to look different in a virtual world, keeping in mind things like procedural fairness and due process, etc. But really being open to the idea of uh, like a multi-door access to justice approach or access to the justice system that's multi-door. And people can do different things in different ways with it. I think it's really a neat opportunity right now. 
I'm excited about all the experimentation I'm, I'm hearing. You know that especially that Danielle raised all the all these different approaches. These you know taking close looks. It was interesting that state Supreme Courts are starting to pull together task forces because again a lot of these were remote proceedings were very ad hoc, put together on the fly, and now they're trying to codify and formalize some of these. And and I'm glad to see that that there's a lot of thought going into that before they become more formalized. I was interested to see that back in Colorado, the Supreme Court, one of the reasons I saw that quote is that they've opened uh, for public comment before they start issuing directives on what should be happening in this space. It took 10 minutes to download <laughs> the public comments. It's like 217 pages or something of public comments. But I thought I, I was struck again is like, are, is that really re- reaching the people who need to be reached that the court needs to hear from? And I think, you know, part of it is organizations like yours, Jennifer, that would be making those comments. But I'm I'm wondering, what are some of the ways you're reaching the people you you almost don't know about? or that you're not hearing from? Or are you seeing any creative ways to do that? We are literally going kind of just connections across the country and reaching out. We've started, you know, started kind of local, reaching out to legal clinics in more remote areas, legal clinics that deal with particular populations or that are service particular populations, and then literally going, you know, old school, sociological snowball research approach where, you know, one name gives you another name and another name. And we've created over the last, say, two, three months, a master list of all of these different little organizations and pockets around the country that are, we hope, are helping people that are not even on our radar. As a national organization, if we put out sort of a survey questionnaire, we we tend to get, a, you know, across the country, people that are interested in answering the survey, but they're already aware of our organization, right? So that that's the easy part in some respects. The hard work has been what um, our organization and our research assistants have been doing for the last three months, which is really like physically tracking down as many different communities as they could. So we'll see how that works. And here in the States, I've been lucky since I joined the National Center to work on a project called Justice for All, which is a partnership with the Self-Represented Litigation Network, along with the Legal Services Corporation and NLADA and several other national organizations. And it's really informed a lot by academic research by Rebecca Sandifer, who's now at Arizona State, but about the importance of collaborating with trusted local institutions and communities and partners to to really understand and crowdsource what is happening in a place. And Colorado is a justice for all state. Michigan is a justice for all state. And both of them have done, and along with 14 other states, but have done a really effective job of trying to really engage with community health workers and social service organizations, other executive branch agencies, people that are um, can help broker feedback from the, the court users that we otherwise don't hear from. You had mentioned earlier, Danielle, about, you know, some interesting things that are happening, some things that courts are doing um, in identifying types of proceedings that work well or improve access. I'm wondering if you're seeing other 
interesting or good models that you'd like to highlight? Let me give you, I guess, two examples of of states that are trying interesting things. The first is the Alaska court system. By just their sheer geography, they have been experimenting with remote hearings out of necessity for decades. So they were really the thought leader when it, at the beginning of the pandemic, because they had been doing phone-based hearings for so long. I mean, there are so many communities that are not accessible by road. And so asking someone to come to court can be a real challenge. They have put rules out for public comment that would codify kind of a hierarchy of what to expect can be remote, what can be virtual, and, and what can needs to be in person. And so they're kind of in the middle of that, although they operated under a general order by the Alaska Supreme Court during the pandemic that kind of set that initial schedule. And I think what they have been doing, thoughtfully integrating technology, is a, is a model in many ways. But in addition to the hearings themselves, they also have been really masterful at thinking about the user experience in terms of all portions of the court and embracing process simplification and improvement as much as possible. So my favorite example from Alaska relates to service of process by publication. So if you're trying to change your name or you're trying to find someone who you cannot serve in person or via service provider, processor server. Um, You can serve by publication, which most people do by putting an ad in the local law journal. But no one reads the law journal, let alone the person that you're trying to reach. Like, it's a totally fundamental due process thing, right? You should be given notice. But the mechanism by which we offer that notice is, is empty. It doesn't honor the fundamental reason for why we do it. And so the Alaska court system put up a web page on their website where they put in the notice of service of process digitally. And I'm sure that the Anchorage Law Journal or whatever the equivalent was not pleased, but I think it honors the purpose of the spirit of the regulation so much better. And it's just a teeny tiny example. And their court administrator, Stacey Mars, who's one of my favorite human beings on the planet, she has been really thoughtful about deploying technology in thoughtful ways that work for users, not just are convenient or take the current court process and just slam it digitally. I think that's when you think things don't work. And then in Illinois, which is my home state, the Illinois Supreme Court recently promulgated some clear guidance about remote hearings. It's a decentralized state, which means There are chief judges and lots of local deviation within the state, and they provided clear kind of roadmap and directions to those courts about what can be possible so that there's more consistency across the state. And I think models of both kinds are really important for other courts to do and, you know, to use the moment to innovate and not just be content with where we are now, but how much better we can be and use this as a period of growth. That's my hope anyway. And I think we're definitely seeing that. I was a little taken aback. I, I sh- not, should not be surprised that um, some folks are going back to in-person only, but I, I wonder if that'll even be short-lived as more good examples start to materialize and make it easier or t- to implement at least changes on court personnel. I, I mean, I'm seeing it. I've seen it in just small hearings 
that family and friends have had to participate in. It's a night. It can be a nightmare for court personnel to manage a virtual proceeding. So it'll it'll be very interesting to see how some of this this uh, comes about. One thing that we saw really successfully, the Vermont courts very early in the pandemic used ARPA funding to hire tech bailiffs. So to hire kind of scrappy young people to help both the judges, the private bar, as well as the public navigate remote hearings. And I think models like tech bailiffs are going to be in part the way we are able to bridge that gap. I think it is a moment in time to think about doing two things. One is to, as you said, not just simply replicate hearings in a virtual setting, but also to uh, think about doing things differently. And I sort of look at it even in terms of restructuring some of the processes that we engage in. So thinking, you know, we have an example, and I'm sure there's there's examples in the U.S. as well, the B.C. Civil Resolution Tribunal. Everything is done online on a platform. It's a different process than just simply having a civil procedure, like a civil procedure brought into a virtual world. It's a, it's a different way of doing, uh, resolving disputes. Um, and so I sort of think we're at that moment as well. So we're thinking about how to do it well, how to ensure people can participate, but we're also thinking about the nature of dispute resolution, the nature of processes that might that m- might be long overdue <laughs> for some reconfiguration, generally speaking. And, and I think to the point maybe that you made earlier, Danielle, that involves thinking about what, pro- you know, what kinds of disputes in what processes with what kind of, you know, people, stakeholders, etc. So it's not just the tech piece, it's, it's really sort of rethinking some of the, some of the, sort of more foundational principles about process and dispute resolution. I'm curious, Daniel, if you're, or and Jennifer, if you're seeing the flip side where you're starting to see more data on virtual court proceedings, user and stakeholder experiences, and, you know, whether in-person proceedings are being adjusted. You know, there are plenty, plenty of room for improvement <laughs> in the justice process. <laughs> So I could see, you know, some lessons learned. Oh, did we really need to be doing this at all moments? Process simplification is is really important. I think the pandemic caused a lot of backlogs in in courts, especially in criminal courts, but not exclusively so. And there have been civil backlogs for a long time. There's been this real tension. These are tend to be in the more kind of larger commercial cases, but who is in control? Is it the court or is it the bar? or the parties, but in the criminal context, the pandemic really caused a huge backlog, which for an optimist and an institutionalist like me is an opportunity to think about how to do things differently because they have to, because the current moment is a crisis for the courts. We have to maintain public trust and confidence. And so you can't just flip a coin and have a case be done. It has to have its thoughtful process, but are all the steps that had been in that necessary And so I think we are in this moment of great reckoning and hopefully using this moment to do the research and the thinking about how to make sure we're doing things really thoughtfully and purposefully. I'll give you just one example. 
I have a colleague, Alicia Davis, who does a lot of work around family justice triage, and she's working in the Nevada court system to really think about can they develop an online portal that really triages cases into the super simple, it should be, you know, there is, there are no issues to debate about to the extremely complicated and how the court touches the case and how it's scheduled and what is asked of the parties should be very different based on those different pathways. And Alicia's been working on that kind of work for a long time, but the pandemic has unlocked the ability to really use technology and not just develop pathways in principle, but actually see how you can leverage systems to make that work more seamlessly. I couldn't agree more. I'm also kind of, I am a process person. I'm <laughs> very interested in sort of thinking about process. And, and I agree entirely with Danielle. This is a moment where we get to do that and we should do it. Um, and I think your example of family court, I mean, for us, and I'm sure it's it's not dissimilar in the United States, is a complete backlog and, for lack of a better word, mess. And it needs more than simply alleviating the backlog. I mean, part of the backlog is pandemic-driven, but part of it is also because there's a disconnect between the needs in terms of that type of dispute resolution and the processes we have to resolve those disputes or to settle those cases. And so it's thinking about that process as well in the context of technology and sort of an online presence. So, yeah, I'm I'm with you, <laughs> I guess I would say, in thinking about things differently. Well, I think that's about the time we have today. But before we wrap up, I wanted to just ask you for some of your favorite resources, especially on involving stakeholders and best practices for virtual proceedings. You're welcome to discuss your own efforts. <laughs> <laughs> and Jennifer, we are 100% waiting, cannot wait to see what what uh, research you come up with and, and your reporting on it. Well, I mean, this is, I mean, I, I mean, we have best practices that are generated by the superior court system here and in every province across Canada. So those are helpful. There, there's no question those are helpful for people. I'm not sure we're at a place, though, where we have a series of resources, though. And I think one of the problems writ large with access to justice is that a lot of this is very piecemeal. And sometimes it has to be because we're dealing with specific problems. But in the context of resources, it often means people are looking in a variety of different places to find pieces of information that will help them sort of do navigate the process better. And I think that's actually one of the biggest, not the biggest, but one of the biggest issues right now that we need to kind of come to terms with is the nature of the resources that we provide to people. So I, I, I don't have a favorite <laughs> in terms of that, but part of what we're going to undertake, I think, will hopefully try and do some of that as well. And not to be too shamelessly self-promotional, but the National Center yeah. has a uh, remote hearings toolkit that my colleague Grace Bullock did yeoman's work to put together that I think is an enormous resource for courts and for advocates when working with courts to think about how to do remote hearings well. And we have a hybrid hearings initiative where we're working in a whole bunch of different courts to try to figure out how to deploy technology thoughtfully and then distill some lessons that we can share more widely. So I would say watch this space. 
Yeah, I'm impressed with with I, and have been through the pandemic with uh, how many resources the National Center for State Courts pulled together, and so very quickly with working groups and really just trying to share resources and information and experiences. So I, I second that as well. And then I've just, as a fangirl, your tiny chats are just hysterical. And I should have introduced you as a, as a co-host of the tiny chats and a star. Oh, wow. No, <laughs> well, thank you. Um, yeah, no, uh, <laughs> Zach is a marvel and I just play along, but yeah, thank you. Um, it is the thing that has probably kept me sane arguably saying during the pandemic has been tiny chats, how to take something really complicated and make it a little bit joyful to think about. So just this morning, Zach and I were watching the first two minutes of Jerry Maguire and trying to figure out how to make it a tiny chat. So stay tuned. (laughs) Awesome. Awesome. Well, thank you so much, uh, Danielle and Jennifer. It was great to have you here. Thank you. Thank you. Listeners, I hope you've enjoyed another episode of Talk Justice. If you like what you've heard, please take a moment to rate us and subscribe on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen so you won't miss an episode. Until next time. Podcast guest speakers' views, thoughts, and opinions are solely their own and do not necessarily represent the Legal Services Corporation's views, thoughts, or opinions. The information and guidance discussed in this podcast are provided for informational purposes only and should not be construed as legal advice. You should not make decisions based on this podcast content without seeking legal or other professional advice.